Please do turn with me tonight to John's Gospel, to chapter 2 and to the final three verses. These verses in many ways are what we might call wrongly incidental verses. We sometimes have a tendency to look at the miracles and the parables and the direct teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're like the bricks of the gospel. But sometimes we find in between the bricks there is mortar tying it all together. And I think these verses, verses 23, 4 and 5, in John chapter 2 are a bit like the mortar. They give us some insights and there are some wonderful and very searching truths here in these three verses that we want to look at tonight. And my title is Christ Knows Us All. We've just sung in a hymn in verse 2, we sang this, My heart to thee I bring, the heart I cannot read. Do you know your own heart? Do you really know what you're capable of? Do you really know where you stand before Almighty God tonight? He is your maker, and one day all of us here, he will be our judge, and we will stand before him. Do you know your own heart? Christ knows us all. That's what we're going to look at here. Well, the Lord Jesus has just commenced his public ministry in John's Gospel in the uh, miracle that's recorded here only in John's Gospel in chapter 2 we have the turning of ordinary water into sublime, remarkable, astonishing wine. A sign of the abundant life that the Lord Jesus gives. He takes the ordinary and he turns it into something extraordinary. And the governor, the man in charge, maybe the father-in-law or whoever was in charge of the wedding says, this is unlike anything else that he's ever tasted. Usually the best is taken first and then what comes after is not so good. But in the Christian life, it's the other way round. We have the ordinary, and then when Christ comes, and when Christ joins, and when Christ works, there is the extraordinary. That's what a miracle is. It's the unnatural, the supernatural, the extraordinary. And so we here have in verse 11, it says, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. Why did he do miracles? Well, it's a simple question. Some people get confused about this. He did miracles, as it says here, to show forth, to display, to manifest his glory. His glory. The fact that he is and was the Son of God, come from heaven, the one who we know about the Father through him. 
He and the Father are one, and he's come to declare, to manifest everything which is about the Father. We get to know the Father. We only come to the Father through the Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's manifesting forth his glory. And it says there, very interestingly, at the end of verse 11, and his disciples believed on him. The penny dropped. He had called them. They had followed him. And now they see just a little manifestation, just a little evidence of who he really is, his person, his power, his character. He truly is the Son of God, unlike any other human being that ever lived, that ever will live, the Son of God. And the disciples really believed on him. They'd taken him at his word when they left their fishing nets, when they left their collecting of taxes or whatever their jobs were, and they trusted, but now they really believed. They put their trust in the one who had shown a sign. That's what a miracle is. It's a sign. It's an evidence. It's the evidence that Christ is who he says he is. Well, in Jerusalem at that time, it was the Passover. And at Passover time, they had holidays for a number of days. And Jerusalem would have been filled with pilgrims who went up to worship in the temple. They would have taken a sacrifice. The poor people would have taken a dove. Those who were slightly more wealthy may have taken even another animal, a sheep or an oxen, and that would have been offered for their own sin. They would have looked on the blood of the animal, and they would have known it spoke of atonement, the need for the cleansing of their sin. It didn't take their sin away. It was just a picture of the one who would take the sin away of all his people. And so the Lord Jesus goes into the temple and there's a mighty confusion. He sees something going on that absolutely turned his stomach upside down. As had been promised in the Old Testament, zeal of thine house had eaten me up. There were people there doing foreign exchange with an extortionate exchange rate so that the temple currency that was the only currency that was permitted could be granted for the offering and there were those buying animals at inflated prices and people were making themselves rich out of worship. That might sound familiar today. People on the God channel, they say, send us your money, send us your prayer offering, and if you give enough, God will answer your prayer. Lie, lie, lie. God doesn't need our money. 
God's house is never to be rented out. I went past a church in the town a few weeks ago and it looked like there'd been a wedding there and the whole evening, it was fairly late on a Saturday night, had been turned into a disco. They'd clearly hired out the building for money and for gain. I just use that as an example. God's house being turned into a place, a den of thieves, a place where gain was being made. And it's in this context, verse 18, that there begins to be a question asked. They've heard of the miracle at Cana. Many were there to witness it in those days. Weddings were attended by hundreds, thousands. They went on for days. And so they ask a question, verse 18. What sign... Notice the word sign. Miracle, sign, it's a very similar word and meaning. What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Which things? Well, obviously the turning of the water into wine and the fulfillment of the prophecy in turning upside down the tables but there were many other miracles that had already been done by then. When this is referred to, it tells us that later. It tells us that there were many other miracles that aren't even recorded in the Bible. The Lord Jesus did thousands of miracles. We just have 37 recorded for us here. The Lord Jesus did these miracles as signs to evidence who he was. Why did he need to do that? You see, as soon as he turned the water into wine, it's as though he lit the touch fuse and there was going to be an explosion. For 30 years he'd waited and waited and waited. He reluctantly says to his own mother, my time has not yet come. You can see the words earlier in the chapter, verse 4. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And there are similar verses in John 7, verse 6. And verse 8, he says, My time is not yet come. My time has not yet fully come. What did he mean by that? You see, as soon as he lit that touch fuse, he knew that there was going to be inevitable opposition and hatred. As soon as he declared that he wasn't just an ordinary carpenter from Nazareth, and nobody from nowhere, he was truly the Son of God, opposition would build and build and build. Inevitably, there would be a great division between those who accepted his testimony and believed in him and on him and those that said, no, 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 we want to make gain, we want to make profit, we want to have position, we want to have power, and you're a threat to us. There was an inevitability about what was going to happen. 
an inevitability that his ministry would divide. And so the Lord Jesus is going to speak about a new living way in which it would no longer be necessary to make sacrifices. What was happening in the temple will be abolished quickly and the Lord's house will no longer be about the shedding of blood every week. It will be about remembering the once shedding of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to miracles and speak a bit more about that. 37 distinct miracles. If you go down the list of miracles, there are a number of buckets that you can put them into. Christ had power over nature. That time that he walked on the water, no one else could do that except by his enabling his power to defy gravity. His power to walk through a crowd and nobody could lay a hand on him. And then, of course, there's many miracles that were about disease and sickness. Just a hand, just a touch, and the person was healed completely, permanently. Then there was those miracles that reversed death. Lazarus. There were the miracles that need multiplication. Something very small turned into something very great. That was what the marriage turning of water into wine was all about and the feeding of the five and the ten thousand. And then there's one miracle that was about judgment. Just one. The fig tree. And the Lord just said one sentence and that fig tree was never to have fruit again. Most of the miracles are healing, positive. They make things, they construct. But that one was one of judgment. Just to remind us of the gospel. The gospel is about the goodness of God, the healing of the heart, the multiplication and the abundance of life, but also there's judgment there. And then, of course, there are those miracles taking the darkness of the human heart and to transform it in a most remarkable way. You think of Mary Magdalene. Just think of her dark, dark life. All that she'd got into and how she was utterly transformed. God, through Christ, has the power to change. Well, why do I mention all this? Let's come to our text. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed. What did they believe in? Well, maybe they believed he was genuine. That would be good, wouldn't it? He's not a phony. We have many phony people involved in churches and religion today. You can't really deny that Christ is genuine. So many witnesses, so much evidence. Oh yes, they believe this is no counterfeit. 
This is a genuine man. The signs, the evidences, the miracles, they're real. Oh, I think they believe that. Many believed in his name, in his reputation. Perhaps they believed he was going to be the political deliverer, the one who would come to take away the Roman occupation, the one who could benefit them in their difficult lives. Some people think Christianity is all about that. My need, need, need. What can God do for me? You're looking at it the wrong way round. Conversion, the gospel, is not about what God can do for me. It's about what we owe God and we can't repay. It's about the fact that I've broken his laws and I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. And so they believed. They believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. This all sounds very encouraging. Maybe we have people here tonight. You believe in the name of Jesus Christ. You believe he's a real man. You believe he did rise from the dead. You believe that he did many miracles, even more than are recorded here. But that's all. You don't believe anymore. You believe in his name. And you believe he does miracles, but that's it. But you know, that's not the gospel. That's not, the gospel is not about miracles. It is. And the same one that did miracles then does miracles today. But miracles don't change the heart. Seeing a miracle doesn't convert anybody. Many people saw the miracle, they believed, but they weren't changed. How do I know that? Verse 24, here's the searching phrase. But, but, Jesus did not commit himself unto them. You see, people get it the complete wrong way round. They think that conversion is about what I do. It's about me believing. It's about me putting my faith in a God I can't see, in a Christ that I never saw. But that's religion. That's not conversion. Jesus did not commit himself unto them. He read their hearts. Do you know, I wish sometimes I could read everybody's heart that comes into this building, and I can't. I can't even read my own heart. But Christ can. Christ reads every heart tonight. You can fool me most of the time. You might even fool me all of the time, but you'll never fool the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he looks into their hearts, and he does not commit himself unto them. Why? Because he knew all men. Every one of these Jews, that's mostly who they were, 
who celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem at that time, he knew their hearts. He knew the disciples had believed. But these people, who he refers to here, they believe but not in the gospel, because the gospel is about what Christ does, not what you do. Let me try and explain this way. We have somebody here tonight, I don't think he'll mind, but this last week he was in Wales and they were out and about and the waters were rising in a river. And there was a man who lost his footing and he was in a pool of water and the water was coming fast and there was a danger that he could have been washed down this river that was in flood. I don't know what could have happened. Maybe he could have died or got injured. Could he save himself? No. What they did was they managed to get a rope and several men stood on the pathway going up from the bridge. They threw it in and he got hold of it. Just imagine that man started to say, but I believe. I believe I can save myself. I believe that I can do it this way. No, no, no. All the rescuing was done by those who pulled the rope, those who got the rope, those who threw it in. It's not a perfect illustration, but the rope was thrown in. All he had to do was to hold on. He wasn't really doing anything. All the work and the effort, pulling the rope, pulling him out of the water, out of the waves, out of the torrent of the river, was done by the rescuer or rescuers. That's what it's like with salvation. We think it's down to us. There is within these verses a double use of the word. In verse 23 it says, Many believed, many trusted. That's what it literally means, many trusted. But in verse 24 it says, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. This is the crunch point tonight. It's not about whether you've trusted Christ, in a sense. It's about whether Christ has trusted himself to you. It's about whether Christ has looked into your heart and seen where you are. You see, he knows your heart. He knows all men. He reads our hearts. Let me explain. He looks into your heart and he knows your state. He knows whether you're lost or saved. He knows whether you sit in darkness or in light. He knows that if you die tonight, whether you'll go to heaven or hell. He knows that. I don't. I wish I did but I don't. But he does. He knows all men. He knows whether you still need rescuing, saving. He knows where you stand tonight. He knows your eternal destiny. He knows every single one of your sin. You don't know that. There are sins that you've done that I've done which we're not even aware of. 
Sometimes I hear of people that say, that person offended me and they're oblivious. Something they've done to offend a little child and they didn't know they'd done it. They put a barrier in the way of that child coming into the kingdom of heaven by something that they did in their life, something they said, maybe as a parent they were a bad example. We don't know our sin. I bring my sins to thee, the sins I cannot count. The Lord knows. The Lord knows our aims, our purposes. He knew what these people believed in and what they didn't. He knew perhaps that they saw him as a stepping stone to some advantage for themselves. But the Lord isn't fooled. Verse 25, how does he know this? Do you know if I was to want to know about your life, I might ask a relative, what's she like at home? What's he like to live with? What's that child like when no one else is around? Maybe even then that wouldn't be accurate because the best judge of a person is what we're like when there's nobody around. But the Lord didn't need the testimony of anybody else. He knows everything. Isn't that searching? Last Sunday evening we read from Jeremiah 17. There's a verse in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. Reins, they pull the horse. They show who's in charge. Who's pulling the reins in your life? Who's making the choices, the decisions? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins to see who's in charge, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. The Lord read their hearts. Nobody took the Lord Jesus in. He knew everyone. I find it very challenging. Jesus did not commit himself unto them. What counts tonight is whether Christ commits himself to take the punishment of your sin. Whether he will lift you up from the waters. Whether he will come and rescue you from your darkness, blindness, deafness, from the prison house of the lost. That's what really counts. Jesus knows us all. You see, he knows the human heart. It's always astonished me how many celebrities, actors and actresses, take their own lives. I think we've had another well-known one today. Again and again and again. You see those that seem to have everything have nothing in their life to hold on to in the darkest part of life. Because the Lord knows that we are restless, we're not satisfied with life, we're morally vulnerable 
to all the lies that Satan tells us, all the temptations he sends our way, we're wandering hearts. And we're hearts that don't have the love of Christ until the Lord comes to us and entrusts himself to us and says, I will be your saviour. I will be your Lord. I'll be your shepherd, your guide, your help for life and for eternity. So here's my question to close tonight. What do you believe in? Do you just believe in the history of Christ? Do you just believe in the signs that he did? Do you just believe in the Bible? Or do you believe that you're a great sinner and that you can have an even greater Savior in Jesus Christ? The Lord knows us all tonight. I don't say this to put tingles down your spine. I don't say this to give you a sleepless night unless that's the means of your conversion. I say this because I want you to know nobody fools Christ. He reads every heart. And if you don't know that you're right with God tonight through Christ, you've got to go and ask him to rescue you. You've got to go and ask him to cleanse you, to forgive you. And he does that when you repent of your sin. There's no mention of repentance. These believed when they saw the signs. They saw. It was just visual. There was no change of heart, no change of life. For conversion to take place, we need to turn from sin. We need to put our faith in Christ. We need to come to him. The one that knows our heart tonight. May the Lord draw near to somebody tonight. Call out to him. Ask him to be your Lord and your Savior this very night. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, may nobody be mistaken tonight. May we not be almost, but may we be all together a Christian, saved by the love, the blood, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, poured out on Calvary for all who repent and believe. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.